0: He'll, he'll probably be asking you to, to ride that bus, and so he'll probably explain what it that means now. Sia, over to you. <laughs> Thanks, Gav. Uh, good morning, everybody. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. That's good news. Um, so my name is Sia, as Gav mentioned, and I lead our kids' church ministry uh, in, up here in Kloof and I get to start a youth. Uh, so just to give you guys a little bit of feedback with regarding that, um, we're really looking at doing some pretty Kiff stuff uh, over the next little while for Kids Church. And for youth, we're looking at, we're on the verge of starting our first uh, high school life group in a physical high school at like Kluv High. So there's things that are happening, and God is really moving behind the scenes. So please keep on praying. Um, i never say no to all your prayers. I really appreciate all your prayers as well. But um, today I'm going to close off our Easter series. And it's called The Observer because we've been observing Easter from three different people's perspectives. So the first of those was uh, a high priest, his name was Nicodemus. He used to meet Jesus in, in private, ask him all these kind of questions. And he kind of orchestrated the uh, release of Jesus' body to Joseph's tomb. And the second week we looked at A centurion. A centurion is like a a Roman God. And what that Roman God did when he saw Jesus crucified crucified on the cross um, really reached the conclusion, if, if this guy really is exactly who he says he is, then what he's done is true. And I want no part of what happens to him now. So he drops all his stuff and he walks away. He has a revelation of who Jesus was. Now today we're going to look at it from... Uh, the last perspective and that's a disciple's perspective. We're going to look at what happens after Jesus had rose and um, what that means for us today and how we can apply that to our own lives. So I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where things are looking dire and uh, they're looking really, really bad um, and then right when it's about to turn ugly, something happens and they shift and they go back to how they used to be or they're better than they were. I'd like to explain that very thoroughly, but I have a video to properly describe exactly what I'm talking about. So have a look at the screen quickly. With no sound. So use your imagination. (laughs) This one I thought was pretty cool. (laughs) <laughs> oh, you can't really see this one, but motorbike, and he lands on the car. That was insane. Um, so there's so many more videos on YouTube, I got lost for like an hour watching those things, um, of people that are supposedly on a, on a dire path, and then something just shifts and then things are better, things are good. Um, we can imagine for a second, and I'm going to read John. Chapter 19, verse 28 for you. But we can imagine that that's the condition of the disciples' hearts. Things are dire, things are bad, and they don't know that things are going to get better. So to them, their story is over. It's reached its conclusion. The only thing that they can do now is go back to what they know. So let's look at John quickly, um, and we're going to unpack this thoroughly. Not this verse specifically. So John 19 verse 28 to 30 says this, Jesus knew that the mission was, not, was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, I hope I said that right, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted this, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So at this moment, I think John is the only disciple that was physically there at, that, uh, at Jesus' crucifixion. All the others scattered all over Galilee, Calvary, the place. Um, so we can imagine that what they're feeling is emotional turmoil. There's elements of fear. There's elements of doubt. There's elements of worrying about what the next step in their journey is. They've just walked three years with this individual, the supposed Messiah. And when the time came for them to stand strong, band together, be exactly what he needed them to be, they were nowhere to be found. They'd forgotten what he had said the past three of the night before. He told them many times, this has to happen. The it is finished part has to happen. But when um, opposition begins to come at them, they forget all that stuff and choose to look at their ability, what that, what um, their faith in Jesus would mean, because they would essentially be on the chopping block with him, so they run off, scatter, go here, go there, Peter, in uh, a great amount of disappointment because he just denied Jesus three times, so he goes off on his own. the other disciples also trying to figure out what it is that they 're supposed to do next, stuck in this emotional turmoil. I don't know about you, but I can find myself relating to the disciples sometimes. Man, I'm trusting God for this really big thing. And when it seems like he's not coming through, when it seems like the thing that I'm praying for isn't coming to me, when it seems like he's gone silent, my response is, well, if he won't, then I will. I'll start taking things into my own hands. I'll start feeling like he's not really on my side. I'll start feeling like things are over. So now do this thing my way. The Holy Spirit works in many ways. Um, Working to that child right now. Um, But I'd like to believe that I'm not the only person in this room that has done that. When things are looking like they're over, we begin to turn to our own capacity, our own ability. And I'm pretty sure we know that it falls short Every single time. See what the, what the disciples had missed is that, uh, as much as they felt that the story was over, it was actually finished, but it wasn't yet over. Because see, Easter isn't just that one moment. Easter happens every single day when we choose to impart the gospel past ourselves. See, when Jesus said, "It is over." He meant that his death on the cross for all people once, for all time, had to happen. His mission was done. But their work wasn't yet over. So uh, we, we know the story from here on out that Jesus eventually rises. Um, and we're going to look at that scripture as well and, and see what happens after he had risen. So Luke verse chapter 24 verse 1. To twelve says this. Uh, but very early on Sunday morning the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there, puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The woman the women were terrified and bowed to their faces, bowed their faces, bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, Why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. Then they remembered that he had said this. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary, Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and several other women who told the apostles what had happened but the story sounded like nonsense to the men so they didn't believe it however Peter jumped up ran to the tomb to look stooping he he peered in and saw uh, the empty linen wrappings then he went then he went home wondering what had happened Now we've got to ask ourselves one question. So a different version of the Bible tells us that those two men were actually angels. Angels that bring in the good report that Jesus had risen. And as soon as the women turn, Jesus appears to them right then and there. So why them? Why Mary Magdalene and Mary, his mom Mary uh, and Joanne and all the other women? Why them first? Because we can imagine that at this moment, all the disciples are congregated together in a room debating what to do next. Peter and James and Andrew and John had gone back to fishing, uh, doing what they know. Some of the other disciples cuddled in a room, uh, Thomas in the corner, doubting as usual. We can imagine that that's the the scene uh, that's painted at that moment. So why doesn't Jesus appear to to the the disciples at that moment? Why Mary? I'd like to believe, and maybe you can believe this as well, um, that it's because When the angel said he's risen, they didn't argue, they didn't debate, they didn't doubt, they believed. And there is something about faith that moves the heart of Jesus. See, as soon as they get that report, their response is, it must be true. They turn and hightail it back to the other disciples to give them the good news. So the disciples over the next 40 days spend their time trying to understand and figure out that he has actually risen. He appears to them one after the other, and yet they still do not believe. If uh, you put yourself in the disciples' shoes at that time, women were just above slaves. Their opinions, their thoughts, their voices were not wanted or needed. So you can imagine that Jesus appearing to the woman first is a little bit scandalous. Because if they give that report it will be regarded as nonsense. That can't be true. We cannot believe what a woman says. I think that Jesus is hoping that maybe if this report comes from these women first, then they can't be crazy. Then what they're saying has to be true because they understand the time that they're living in. They understand that if they said such a ridiculous statement that it would be incredibly insensitive of them to do so if it wasn't true. So we fast forward a little bit and we get two disciples on their way to a, a town called uh, Emuse or something. These, these disciples don't have names that are unnamed. And uh, Jesus appears to them, walks a seven-mile journey with them. And his first question is, what's going on? Because they're downcast, spirits are heavy, and he begins to try to understand where they're at. And they have a conversation with him the whole way. Where have you been? Did you not know that the son of man was crucified? He's not risen and we can't find his body. And Jesus just listens, engages, meets them right where they are. And when they get there, he pretends to walk on and they're like, Whoa, wait, wait, it's late. Come over for dinner. So then Jesus comes on in, and he breaks bread. And right then and there, it clicks. This is Jesus and He disappears. So they get up, hightail it back to the other, other disciples to give the report. He has actually risen. Still they don't believe. Still they do nothing with this information. Peter, somewhere in the corner saying, we're going to build a wall. Um, <laughs> uh, he, he didn't say that. <laughs> Thomas in the corner doubting. But they still struggle to grasp this concept that he has risen. They're struggling with the concept of faith, believing far before you see. Now, why did Jesus walk a seven-mile journey with those two disciples? He gives us a, a glimpse into how we're meant to walk a journey with people. See, relationship will always come before revelation. He walks those seven miles, building or reminding them of the relationship that he has with them. And the moment he breaks bread the revelation comes. And when we choose to walk a seven-mile journey with the people that are in our lives, building a relationship with them, Jesus will bring the revelation. It's a simple idea, but it's absolutely powerful. Because you see, the thing about walking a seven-mile journey with people is that what you come to believe doesn't happen in a moment It happens in a process. If I had to tell you today that the Bulls were the best rugby team in South Africa right now, you wouldn't believe me. You'd have to watch all the Bulls games, uh, get all the post-game references, put all the data together until eventually you come to conclude that what he's saying must be true because the evidence supports that. Here's Jesus walking a seven-mile journey with these two disciples, and they get a revelation of exactly who he is, and they come to believe what is true in their hearts, because their hearts are burning while they were walking with him, but it happened over a process. Let's look at what happens next. So now after 40 days of meandering, uh, and walking, and popping into rooms, and appearing to disciple after disciple. Peter, James, all the, the ones. <laughs> um, all the disciples and meeting them exactly where uh, they need him to. Reinstating Peter as the rock that he's going to build his church. Still, after all of this, they struggle to believe. So he appears to all of them together in one room. And we're going to look at that scripture now. Luke 24 verse 36 to 49 says this. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there amongst them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me. Make sure that I'm not a ghost, because ghosts don't have bodies, as you can see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still, they stood in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. I think at this point, you've got to think to yourself, the disciples were idiots. <laughs> like, how much evidence do you need? How much more do you need to believe that he's actually risen? Like, the past three years have made no impact on your life. Someone said that one event, one moment, has led you to believe that the story is over. That the person that you came to believe no longer exists in the same realm. He's no longer walking with you. He's no longer who he said he was. And if Jesus never rose, then all he was was a man that died on a cross for a ridiculous cause. If this moment never happened, Jesus was just another man that died on a cross. Um, then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and they ate it as they watched, which is a little weird. Has someone ever watched you eat? It's the strangest thing on the planet. Like, that's the one thing that no one should ever do. Then he said, When I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their eyes, their minds, to understand the scriptures. I'm gonna pause here for a moment because that verse is absolutely powerful. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Who are the scriptures about? Him. He is the scripture. He opened their minds to understand exactly who he is. See, then at that moment, everything made sense. They understand that the story might have felt like it's over, but it wasn't. It was just finished for that season. Because, see, he came to accomplish something. He was on a mission to restore all mankind in right standing with God. And when he did that, his work was over, but theirs was just about to begin. See, when he opened their minds to understand the scripture, he helped them see the bigger picture that goes far beyond themselves. And I think that that's the mentality, mentality that we need to look at the gospel with. The gospel is meant to move far beyond ourselves. Because see, if Easter uh, Easter really is not over, then the gospel needs to keep on moving amongst the the lost, the unsaved, the people that don't yet believe. The gospel cannot stay in this room. The gospel can't be just for Christians that are uh, huddled up in the corner singing kumbaya. It's got to be far bigger, bigger than us. It's got to keep moving far beyond ourselves. Because you want to understand the bigger picture that Jesus saved you with someone else in mind, we cannot help but keep the gospel moving. Because if good news is still good, then we have to share it. Now you might be wondering to yourself, how do you, how do you share the gospel in a way that isn't weird because it's really getting to that point now where you say Jesus to someone and they close off. They don't want to hear nothing of that. How do we share the gospel in a way that is constructive and helpful to the person that we're sharing it with? I'll get to that in a moment but let's conclude this verse quickly, this portion of scripture. And he said, Yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It is also written that this message will be proclaimed in the authority of of his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of all sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. And now now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. There's some really incredible portions in the beginning there. When Jesus eventually reaches the end of himself and he gives them physical evidence that he's actually alive, he's trying to achieve a spiritual result. Because your faith is believing before you see, but we all know that seeing is believing. So he resorted to that to get them to understand that he, he's alive. And when he breaks bread, he doesn't do that by accident. He was restored to all his glory when he rose. I don't think he was hungry but there's a spiritual significance to him choosing to break bread with the disciples, choosing to take communion with the disciples because he wants to remind their spirit of who he is. Because see, for those 40 days, all he was doing was changing the condition of the disciples' spirit because there was work for them to do. And it wasn't going to happen unless their spirit was changed because they were downcast, sad, unhappy, uh, doubting, uh, ashamed, disappointed, all those things were happening in their hearts. Jesus had to fix that first before he sent them out. But at this moment, eventually he's like, cool. I've, I've done what I need to do with you. You might feel like you're not ready, but there's a mission. There's a mandate that needs you. But you can't do it without the Holy Spirit. And when he takes communion with them, when he breaks bread, he reminds them of the, uh, the feeling or the internal desire within their hearts that longs to take communion with Jesus because when we, do, when we take communion it's obviously different now because we have Jesus in our hearts but they physically had him there when we take communion it's in remembrance of that moment when he was doing it then he was reminding them of the last supper, what they must have felt what they were talking about what the moment must have felt like there is significance to everything that Jesus did, from the moment that He rose to the moment that He ascended to heaven. Because He says, "Stay in the city." They make their way over to Jerusalem, which about a day's walk, and they stay there, sitting in a room together, having mild conversation. And then eventually, someone's like, "We should, we should maybe start praying." After they instead Matthias as the as the twelfth disciple, they start praying and praising. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They start speaking in different tongues. And people around Jerusalem start hearing someone speak in their language. They go and have a quick look. And like, weren't those the disciples that were walking with Jesus? Why are they speaking in my tongue? Peter stands up and takes his moment. Preaches the good news. 3,000 people are saved in that moment. Now when we hear the word preaching, it always sounds far more are holy than it is. Preaching is simply telling a story. He got up and told a story about a man who came to die on a cross for all creation, wiping out all sin, defeating death once for all time for everyone. See, when we let the gospel do the work, people's lives are changed. The mission, the mandate wasn't just theirs. It's ours too. It was given, it was made 2,000 years ago, but it is most relevant even now. So how do we share the gospel in a way that's constructive? How do we keep the gospel moving in a way that doesn't hurt people? I believe that the answer is seen in that seven mile walk. Our first... uh, utterings when we walk up to someone can't be repent and you'll be saved that will weird people out really but maybe when you're at a coffee shop you can just say hello to the person on the other side of the counter what's your name how'd you get here and maybe the person at work that rubs you up the wrong way maybe when you come into the work to the office next week tomorrow um you bring them a gift start a conversation walk seven miles with people build relationship with people we are carriers of the gospel we're ambassadors of the gospel our job isn't to change people our job is to love people jesus does the changing see when we build a relationship with people he will bring the revelation and that's life change the solution is quite simple And I know this is not the most theologically profound sermon that you've ever heard, but the solution is simple. Just keep the gospel moving through relationships and let God do the changing. You are an important piece in this puzzle. I want you to just exercise a little bit of um, imagination for a second. Imagine that that the disciples, after Jesus had ascended into heaven decided not to go to Jerusalem would we be sitting here today now we'd like to believe that we, we would because God is far bigger than people's mistakes but I don't think that we'd be sitting here specifically in this setting, in this circumstance, in this context we might be but not everyone would be in this room at this exact moment the story isn't about us but it needs each and every single one of us I know of a pastor in America who has a four-time cancer survivor in his congregation. Just take a minute to let that sink in. Four-time cancer survivor. She reached a point in uh, her bout with cancer where she was like, "Cool, if this is what the devil's trying to use to disrupt my faith, then I'll turn my prison into my platform." And she started reaching the people that were getting chemotherapy with her. One week, eight, come to church. The next, 20. She chose to use the very thing that was looking to be over as her mission field. She chose to go. Maybe not go to Saudi Arabia, Australia, China, all those nations. Just walk across the room and say hello and tell a story. Be a witness. Or perhaps a couple in so they were born in Cape Town um, and when they got married he felt that God was calling them to move to Western Zambia, one of the most impoverished countries or parts of the country three months into marriage he then dishes out that information very clever, marry her first and then tell her what God is saying um, but she understanding that God is far bigger than them, submits to That, and they moved to Western Zambia. They started a thing called the Zambia Project. They feed maybe close to 300 orphans a month. They started a thing called Hope Art, where if you buy two bracelets, you can feed an orphan for a month. They planted a church in Mongu that has something close to 1,000 congregants. They get missionaries from all across the world who go out into the villages in Western Zambia and preach the gospel. Because the people there are living in spiritual darkness. Village after village, people get saved. They get to plant water wells so people have clean and safe drinking water. Because there's no water, so they dig holes in the ground and drink that. Or maybe uh, Brian and Bobby Houston, 30 some odd years ago, for the inkling to start a church and they started in a little garage But because God's hand was upon it and the gospel was moving, some 30-odd years later, I think they have something like 30 sites across the world and more are coming. Kristen Kane, who uh, really had a heart to stop human trafficking, starts a company called A21 that fights against human trafficking all across the world. All because people want to see other people set free all because the gospel worked in someone's heart and they understood that the work is not yet over. We cannot keep this to ourselves. There is something for you to do. It might not be all the way across from the other side of the planet. It might just be walking over to your neighbor and saying, would you like to come over for dinner? The simple things, I believe, are what makes moving the gospel easy. You are far more important to God than you might think. Take a minute to let that sink in. You are important. And I'm going to invite for you on the app, and we're going to do a little bit of an exercise together. And maybe while I was speaking, some people are popping into your heart um, people that you want to pray for, maybe invite her for dinner, someone that you want to say hello to, someone that you want to start a relationship with if you're single. Um, and maybe, do you need help, Effie? But won't we close our eyes for a second? I want, I want you to begin to imagine what the world would look like if you moved the gospel beyond you. Who would you pass it on to first? How would you pass it on? Or, oh, if I've been a little bit closer to home, what does the gospel mean to you? What has it done for you? Man, that is far more important than making a bad person good. It made a dead person alive. want you to begin to think on people that you'd like to start sharing the gospel with or think on things that you'd like to start doing, ministries that you'd like to start, businesses that you'd like to start, that you see people's lives impacted and changed forever, relationships that you'd like to build, friendships that you need to rekindle. Just hold those people in your head. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the price that you paid for us. Man, we can never fully grasp or understand the magnitude of that moment when you said it is finished, but our hearts are filled with gratitude. We are righteous. We are absolutely righteous because of you. And man, that gives us every reason to go to go be a witness, to go be a friend to all the people that don't yet know you. The work on the cross is finished, but the work on earth is not yet over. Holy Spirit, won't you begin to place people on our hearts that we can start to build relationship with, that we can start to walk a seven-mile journey with, moving forward because the gospel works best when we let the gospel do the work Heavenly Father we love you we appreciate these moments that we can be inspired and faith stirred up within us won't you help us take one step one faith step no matter how small no matter how ridiculous it might seem but just one so much. Why don't you go be a disciple and bring someone next week. Seats tell stories. go tell yours. Amen.